This is Anubhava, a podcast for art, science and philosophy, exploring our relationship to everyday experiences between the mind, body and environment. Anubhava is a Sanskrit word translated to experience that is vital to examine the everydayness of things in themselves. This word has the potential to bridge huge gaps in continental and eastern phenomenology in our conscious understanding of knowledge emerging from embodied cognition. I am Shashank Satish, the principal investigator of the XPC or Experiential Cognition Lab founded in Bengaluru in 2017 practicing at the limits, horizons and possibilities of accounting for plural everyday experiences in art science and consciousness research. Premchand Avarkar is the managing partner of CNT Architects, an award-winning and widely published architectural practice based in Bengaluru, India. He received his training from the School of Planning and Architecture, New Delhi, in 1978 and went on to do a research-based master's degree in architecture from the University of Oregon, USA in 1982, where he wrote a thesis on the linguistic analogy in architectural theory. He's a former executive director of Shrishti Manipal Institute of Art, Design and Technology in Bengaluru and is an academic advisor and guest faculty at Indian and International Colleges of Architecture. In 2016, he was the curator of the Centenary National Convention of Indian Institute of Architects on the theme Imagining the Indian City. The same year, he was the 2016 Walton critic at the Catholic University of America in Washington DC. Besides his design practice at CNT, he writes, lectures and blogs on architecture, urbanism, philosophy, politics, education, environment, art and cultural studies. What is the relationship between architecture, experience and consciousness? What is the role of architects in society? How do we remain in a state of creative tension between practice and theory? Continuing the conversation on architectural and participating consciousness, join me in this fifth episode of the Anubhava podcast, the second of a two-part series with architect Prem Chandavarkar. as he eloquently answers questions about consciousness and experience while sharing stories and examples that matter to the level of spirit in architecture the three modes of consciousness are first person second person and third person the first person is what is within a uh, second person is the relationships we have with others and the third person is the ways we can sort of document it as something you know that can sit there which we can all examine and um, all of them are actually important in constructing one's model of practice because first person experience is the way one knows a certain reality that you cannot talk about otherwise so you think about all the things that make life worthwhile whether it is love joy beauty wonder you would be hard pressed to describe them but when you experience them you know it as a tangible reality 
second person experience works as a means of validation it you can't totally put those things out there but perhaps love is the one that you can most uh, tangibly put out but when it is reciprocated and it you find it find you find its echoes in another you both validate something larger than yourself and you also know yourself through the way you're called upon by another so that that relationship is important and then what we actually do in practice is that we reify this validation mm-hmm. in the in the products we create so so you have to look at all these three modes of consciousness and realize they embedded within social ecological institutional networks and at least to see how we construct those institutional networks one looks at the practice to to look at all these three modes and their interaction thing of studying brains uh, which sort of brings us up against what david chamas uh, describes as the hard problem of consciousness mm-hmm. which is can you find neural correlates in 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 all of consciousness and um, that runs up one against the whole mystery of consciousness because uh, there's there's a podcast series i don't know if you've uh, listened to it called on being mm-hmm. and there's one which is a conversation with a physicist called Brian Green yes and uh, he says we are all physical bodies made up of particles bound by the laws of physics but somehow in a way that science has never been able to explain these particles cohere into a consciousness that can dream ideate love and has led to the choral movement in beethoven's ninth symphony as led to Picasso's paintings has led to Einstein's discovering the theory of relativity and and he says that's a wonder of it all and that's an answer you're not going to find in science <laughs> so uh, i attended a webinar recently uh, with uh, Ian McGilchrist and uh, i asked this question in the webinar about whether this hard problem of consciousness is resolvable so mm-hmm. so he said the the way the question is phrased is uh, is uh, uh, creating its own problem mm. he said can you find roots in consciousness that are outside consciousness and he says it's like existence you can't explain existence from something outside existence <laughs> and consciousness is the same thing you just have to say i'm within that boundary of consciousness i can't step outside it to explain it see it's 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 not the way we are taught but it is how we conventionally live mm. we are educated to think understanding must come before action there's a wonderful book by donald shawn called the reflective practitioner mm-hmm. which uh, talks about this that we first reflect and then we act mm-hmm. and he says each act of practice is far too complex to be just applied theory mm-hmm. and he empirically studies effective professionals in a multitude of fields including architecture and says what the effective professional does is have a value system and then uses the specific practice task to stretch mm. and challenge and expand that value system or that ability so you sort of expand one sense of being in the world mm. so he says far from reflection and action effective professionals develop the capacity for reflection in action mm.
Talking about the state of education, at least architecture education, uh, since I also know that you've been in the academia and education field for some time, what do you think is lacking there? Um, this is an extract from the book I mentioned earlier again. Much architecture is theorized and taught solely in terms of a focused vision, but we are embraced by space by means of our peripheral perception. So we are put into a space. We do not look at a space in isolation. We are, it's the atmosphere of the space that creates our, that relationship between us and the built. So how do we bring this in into a, a wider engagement of uh, the body, mind and environment into the educational field? It's, um, yeah, it's very true. Uh, Palasma writes about it in The Eyes of the Skin, mm -hmm. which uh, talks about how important all the senses are in, in the one's relationship with architecture and how architecture has become dominated not just by the visual but by a particular kind of vision, focused vision. Mm -hmm. And focused vision creates a distance between spectator and object. Whereas peripheral vision immerses us into space. So, hmm. And I've had the opportunity to have conversations with him about this. And uh, the, because of this bias, we tend to look at the precise delineations of form that focused vision picks up hmm. and pay insufficient attention to the gradations of scale and texture that peripheral vision depend on. Hmm. Or insufficient attention to the structuring of space that helps up to build mental maps of it, which are so necessary to build a sense of comfort and enrichment in one's relationship with architecture. So uh, I think that's the that's a big sort of change in thinking, and it has a. a impact on uh, education and I've written an essay that uh, is going to be part of a collection that should be coming out towards the end of this year mm -hmm. uh, which is titled Teaching the Voice Within uh -huh. and I think that that is a fundamental problem in not just architectural education but many other disciplines but it has a very sort of deleterious impact on the kind of architecture we create by missing this point is that we tend to uh, we tend to teach um, a profession um, I use the metaphor of the weightlifter mm -hmm. the the weight to be lifted the ideal of what architecture is something external something to be theorized or something to be aestheticized, but it's something external. And what you need to do is just develop the muscles to lift the weight. Mm -hmm. Whereas what has actually been the basis of craft and architecture before it got professionalized into the discipline was an ideal of personal mastery, mm -hmm. where actually you are highly embedded and entwined with the world. But you use your consciousness uh, 
to to you you know to live by Campbell's notion of the rapture of being alive. Mm. And uh, uh, Peter Senge, who's written a lot on personal mastery, uses the metaphor of a rubber band, mm-hmm. where one end of the rubber band is stretched by a current reality, and the other end is stretched by a hope of what one might be. <laughs> and he says it has the rubber band has to be in a state of creative tension. Mm-hmm. If you stretch it too hard, you create stress and burnout and alienation. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it is too slack, you become anesthetized by habit. Mm-hmm. So it has to be always in this state of creative tension. So I think education should begin mm-hmm. with the voice within and and train the student to to with the means by which they enter this state of creative tension that is so well put and uh, we can only hope that education will kind of grapple with these challenges that are mm. currently uh, insufficient in in the way they are delivered and even taught at uh, institutions uh Speaking of institutions and larger ideas of the mind and the brain and architecture and how we are all put into it, if we can just uh, kind of slightly deviate uh, uh, into the institution's science and in particularly neuroscience and the cognitive revolution of the century, um, do you think uh, the landscape of architecture has changed or will change, looking at it as a discipline, uh, when we look at human psychology and understand it through brain and mind studies? It hasn't changed as yet. And uh, sadly, there's an inertia within the profession that is not as yet taking um recognizing these these developments mm. but uh, hopefully it will i mean because it will i mean it is giving a scientific basis uh, to to question a lot of earlier assumptions mm-hmm. uh, one is just in in uh, in the way one reads buildings and uh, there is imaging software based on studying both eye tracking and and mm-hmm. uh, neural responses which uh, show how one responds to these things and uh, how a lot of modern architecture actually is alienating in that sense mm-hmm. and actually the 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 traditional buildings had a sort of much greater sort of connection with the inherent uh, uh, sort of capacities, the evolution of the human body. I had always felt this, for example, that uh, one of the things that the traditional buildings did well is that they they adjusted to the scale of the human body. Mm. That if you looked at the smallest element in a facade, Mm. you could say, okay, that's one and a half people high and three people wide. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't do uh, something like take a single material like glass and stretch it across 20 floors, stretch Mm. it unbroken, which, which is alienating in terms of scale. And one felt that intuitively, but one is getting the scientific evidence uh, that that proves that proposition. Uh, writings of people like Ian McGilchrist, who uh, sort of uh, 
the popular myth of the right brain and the left brain and one mm. is is good at creativity and one is good at logic and language and uh, and he says although neuroscience has it's done away with that myth uh, decades ago it has survived in the popular imagination and he points out how uh, actually uh, it's not that you, the brain divides subjects amongst them each side of the brain tackles these subjects equally mm. but they deal with it in very different ways mm. and one um, deals with the notion of focused vision of manipulating the world mm. and the other is on context mm. and that's because perhaps our brains evolved that way because we are at a time where we had to find food mm. but also be wary of predators so find food requires that focused vision and the manipulation of the world mm-hmm. but the contextual vision which comes from mindfulness you don't know where the predators come coming from so you have to develop this mindful relationship learn to read the signs the sounds the the smells all of that too and he says the problem is western civilization has has privileged the logical side of the brain the manipulation mm-hmm. of the world and has devalued uh, and that's had very uh, adverse material consequences so hopefully more evidence on this will start coming over time and will start cracking away at the edifice of convention that uh, dominates uh, education right now yeah um i think uh, plasma is a torch bearer in kind of merging the fields of uh, mind study and mind studies and architecture um architecture is a mode of existential and metaphysical philosophy through the means of space matter gravity scale and light and he so beautifully kind of condenses so much into this just one beautiful line um taking uh, a tangent from this uh, can we now talk about your own practice or if you have your design philosophy and how do you embody your practice in in that sense because i know that you're both equally an academician and a practitioner so you're very mindful um and also you 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 question things and both pre and post practice so how does that play out for you in your practice well one thing is uh, i have sought to orient the practice towards uh, what i call the aesthetic of absorption mm-hmm. of an aesthetic that accrues over time so there's a there's a methodology we use in all projects uh which uses two terms uh, which you know because other other question one was grappling with was the autonomy of architecture as a discipline hmm. that architecture as a craft of space making has its own skills and abilities and do you sort of focus on that and if you focus on that how do you relate it to the world hmm. so our methodology for resolving that is to uh construct two terms uh, which we use in a very precise way that we've defined for ourselves and the other proposition and the diagram mm-hmm. and the proposition is not about architecture it's about life mm-hmm. 
and it's about the process by which we come to terms with our humanity mm. because most architects forget that they try and resolve all questions through the lens of architecture and forget that they were human beings bef before they were architects and they have to come to terms with what being human means right. um, so the proposition is an aspirational statement about life that is specific to the project mm. so one might uh, be designing a college for example and have a proposition of the community of learners mm. uh, one might be designing a private house and talk about it as a space for dreams and the diagram is to do with the autonomy of architecture it's it's an art mm. it's it's a very specific architectural spatial order mm. and the challenge in the pro project is how to intertwine these two how can you make the proposition inhabit the diagram? How can you allow the diagram to liberate the proposition? Yeah, once intangible and once tangible. So yeah. I think that's a good mixture yeah. of things yeah. too. Uh, the second thing that we are seeking to do, and it's it's enormously difficult, and it's say it's still very much a work in progress, which we are. But is to look uh, critically at the notion of practice. Mm. Uh, although practice is the primary means by which architecture happens, it's a very poorly uh, researched and uh, conceptualized term. Mm. And there are two anecdotal models that prevail. Uh, one is the idea of the business organization, mm. which uh, forms the mainstream of practice and has given us all the protocols, project process by which we do uh, uh, projects. And the other is the creative personality, the creative genius, which is seen as the cutting edge. When one names the cutting edge of architecture, one tends to name specific individuals. Mm. You know, you'll say Norman Foster, Charles Correa, Doshi, whatever, you tend to largely name individuals. Mm. And even where you might have the name of a firm like OMA, you'll still associate it with Rem Koolhaas. <laughs> you know, there'll be a personality. And while that model has no doubt a lot of it has given us wonderful architecture. It has not bred a healthy culture for the profession because it's bred a culture of heroes and imitators rather than one of mm. being embedded in the world, widespread mastery, a participating consciousness. It hasn't bred all those things that I've argued earlier in this conversation are important. So we are trying to look at the notion of practice more critically and we have this model of the practice as a place. A phrase I like to use is we talk just about the practice of architecture but not the architecture of practice. Mm -hmm. And looking at that has actually uh, changed the starting question mm. uh, over time. I think we, uh, we started with the question, what is architecture? Mm. Which is a very valid question, but perhaps the wrong starting point. Then we said, okay, we'll engage that question, but we'll start with the question of what is, what is, what is my practice? Mm. And through that, deal with the question of what is architecture? I'm now moving to a sense that there is actually a more fundamental question, which is, who is my friend in my practice? Mm -hmm. 
because that is a process by which we discover our humanity. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that is why we've constructed the logo of our firm as an open door mm-hmm. to say that you know we welcome friends in. So, so we'd like to uh, have conversations with our clients in that way about the propositions and. Uh, so it sounds all very easy when you describe it, it's enormously difficult to do because you realize how difficult it is to break out of your past conditioning. That's true. And it requires enormous patience because it's like growing a garden. Mm. You, can just, you can just offer the right inputs but you can't hurry up or change the process. So, so I think these notions of how one offers architecture as a site of inhabitation that enriches the world and uh, how one constructs one practice. That first part about enriching the world, there's a wonderful line from Palasma on that where he says, I lend my perceptions to a space and the space returns to me its aura which enhances and emancipates my experience. Mm -hmm. So that dialogue between the aura of a space and uh, and the inhabitant is what I feel is, but to try and access that aura is also enormously difficult. Once it's there, you recognize it instantly. And we perhaps hit it at the odd project here and there. We still to crack the basis of achieving it consistently. So the practice we are looking at is the idea of the practice as a place and it's not personality centric. Mm-hmm. So we're actually set up uh, as five autonomous teams and the leader of each team uh, takes a primary lead in generating designs. Mm. So I don't, I've stepped back from a role of a primary designer. I intervene in designs, but I step back and I look at myself as the designer of a design culture. Mm-hmm. So that the dialogue between these teams is what enriches and sustains the practice. That's that's beautiful. Um, I think this would be my last question. Did things change for you during the pandemic? And what do you think is going to change in terms of architecture in because of the pandemic? And our relationship to architecture? Okay, it's a rather challenging question to answer because in the last year or so, most uh, mind space has been captured with just coping with the material chaos of the of the pandemic. Mm. You know, so many projects came to a halt. Uh, turnover in the first year of the pandemic was almost half of what was the previous year, so that has a whole lot of things one has to cope with then mm. and so I think one is just beginning to sort of approach the, the wider question that you're asking and uh, yes the, the questions at the level of architecture itself um, one perhaps has to rethink what the nature of work is mm. Um, and uh, 
what the relationship between work and home is. It's raised some very fundamental questions about that and uh, offices have still not gone back to business as usual. Mm. So uh, one has to cope with that. One has to think about uh, the wider questions of urban form and sustainability. Mm. Uh, that we've caused the pandemic because of our current models of overconsumption, which has pushed habitation out to these frontiers against the wild, creating the breeding ground for zoonotic viruses. Mm. So, so we have to think of all of these things. And uh, And we have to rethink uh, the relationship between markets and society. I recently read a book uh, by, which was written in the 1940s called The Great Transformation by Karl Polanyi. Mm -hmm. And he talks about this relationship and uh, he says that uh, uh, markets and societies have coexisted for centuries. I mean, since time immemorial, but markets have always been subordinate to society and the inversion that made uh, society subordinate to markets is, uh, is actually much more recent in history coming after the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And the thing that struck home is that he, has, uh, he said this inversion has led to the creation of what he calls fictitious commodities, mm -hmm. which is commodities posited as being very natural components of markets, but actually fictitious. So, uh, lives get reduced to labor. Mm -hmm. And if there is no demand for labor, lives go unrecognized. Uh, land is treated as an asset and its embedment in, in history, in environment, in culture, uh, in relationships, all these things are, are, go unseen. So I think we need to start rethinking those questions. Yeah, I think it has given us an opportunity and shook us up a bit to kind of re-question. Yes and no, there's, there's, there's still a very powerful elite which is saying we can go back to business as usual, <laughs> that we can go back to the world before the pandemic. And the questioning of a new world, I think, is more fringe at the moment than mainstream. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end the show. I thank you a lot for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, yeah, we can end it there. Thank you. It was my pleasure too. Thank you. This podcast is an attempt to build transdisciplinary bridges exploring nuances and roles of experience in the first, second and third person perspectives as evident in the Experiential Cognition Lab Manifesto. To find out more, subscribe to the XPC Lab podcast Anubhava. You can now listen to new episodes here at XPC Lab online on Anchor, Spotify and SoundCloud. You can find links to all of this and more in the podcast description. This show is produced by Holy Cow Studio. Visit holycowstudio.in 
slash home slash xpc dash lab for more information. We are on Instagram at xpc.laboratory. Thanks for listening. I'm Shashank Satish for the XPC Lab and I will be back next time for another episode in exploring experience, philosophy, art science and more through Anubhava. Namaste.